In the country known as the warm face of Africa, things are heating up on the political front with the recent arrest of Malawi's anti-graft chief, just days after her office charged the vice president, Saulus Chilima, with taking a bribe from a businessman. And of course, there is rigorous debate around the current state of press freedom in Malawi. One of those in the forefront of investigative journalism and corruption exposés, Gregory Gondwe, recently landed in jail for a report published by the Platform for Investigative Journalism, PIJ, which he heads. A journalist who also trains and mentors in this field, Gregory started his career just prior to Malawi's transition from one-party rule to democracy in 1994. I'm Gwen Lister, host of this Free Speak podcast of the NMT, in which we discuss all things media. And I'm delighted to chat to Gregory in person about the overall media climate in Malawi and whether there's room for optimism or whether the reverse is true. So welcome, Gregory, and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Gwen. Gregory, let's start straight out by asking you, as I mentioned earlier, you started your journalism life just as one-party rule under Hastings Kamuzubanda came to an end in 1994. In a nutshell, what has changed uh, for the media in Malawi since that transition? I think what has changed uh, is the pluralism of uh, the media outlets. Because during the one-party rule, uh, the first president, Hastings Kamsubanda, only allowed a single radio station, a single weekly, and a single daily. And he never allowed the televisions in Malawi. So the moment he was pushed out, first with the referendum of 1993 and with the coming in of the multi-party democracy right. in 1994, right. uh, we discovered that the, uh, the president that succeeded him, Bakiri Mulozi, allowed for at least a, a few radio stations. And he also started a, the state-owned uh, television station. Yeah. So really, it's, it's the issue of the change from government control of the media uh, under one-party rule, as was characteristic of so much of Africa at that time. Yes. And then to becoming more pluralistic and open, the airwaves included. Yeah, and one very important aspect of these two regimes is also that the, the first president, Hessens Kamuzubanda, right. never allowed any institutions to train journalism. So the, the people that were trained as journalists in the outside universities, the moment they are back in Malawi, they are not they are not allowed to practice it. So you'd find that most of those that are trained as journalists would start working as uh, secondary school teachers. But uh, for well, ironically, those that had been trained uh, as uh, in like batch of education and what have you, these were the ones that were taking control of the media. So you'd find that the, when you look at the old media practitioners, they were all trained as teachers. But uh, because of the landscape, they, they were allowed. They were more allowed to practice. That's fascinating. And I think that's fairly unique to Malawi. Yes. Uh, but Gregory, just to add on to that question, I guess then, um, and I'm not sure what was the case in your own case, but then there was that very difficult transition uh, for some of those journalists, whether they'd been teachers or whatever they were before, who had been basically operating under a system where they had to be nice to government um, under one-party rule, and suddenly to realize they're free to report, or more free to report uh, independently. What was that? Were you affected by that transition, and how did that go? Yes, I think it, it had a huge effect. Uh, I was lucky that I started writing for what was known as Maui Democrat. Maui Democrat started uh, around 1993, uh, and it was, it was being published in Zambia and smuggled into Malawi. I remember that. Yeah, and the, anyone else caught reading it would be arrested for seditious, for holding or keeping seditious material. Right. So, uh, but then with the opening of the floodgates, so came people that wanted to exercise that kind of freedom in a manner that 
uh, that didn't uh, give them room as to what journalism was exactly all about. Exactly. So you'd find that people would do write stories that would defame, but uh, they wouldn't know that it was defamatory to write in a certain way. Yeah. Because remember that most of those that had now joined the bandwagon we had never been trained as journalists. Absolutely. So Absolutely. Uh, you'd find that there, there were a lot of lawsuits. They, for example, even the Malawi Democrat ended up folding up because uh, they, 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 there was a scandal. They, when Bakiri Moz came to power, there was a scandal in the in the manner that they procured some uh, primary school books. Because one other thing that Bakiri Moz had brought with him was the introduction of the free primary school education. Right. So it meant that they needed teachers, they needed material. So I think uh, they, for, for the Minister of Education somehow, uh, they had they ended up cutting corners, and the, the at the centre of the, the the procurement scandal was the former uh, minister now dead, right. Sam Pasu, was exposed by the Democrat, but the, because uh, the manner in, in which the story was uh, delivered left uh, room for for lawsuits, so they ended up losing. Uh, they were supposed to pay a very huge sum, and they only, they ended up folding up. Oh gosh, which speaks to something we're going to discuss about contemporary Malawi. But, you know, just aside, um, I think this issue of the kind of transition from one party rule in Africa or in the case of South Africa, apartheid, to then suddenly free and democratic countries um, posed a real challenge for journalists who'd been trained under these old regimes. And I think that would be a fascinating discussion to explore, probably not today, but in future. Um, Gregory... Obviously, public procurement scandals, and you've hinted that already, are new to Malawi, but they've been ongoing through the various presidencies. To what extent do you think, certainly since 1994, has investigative journalism played a role in uncovering these these scandals? For you to understand how the media has been covering these scandals, uh, I need to take you back to the Kamozo regime, right. where... Everyone else was not free to even talk about issues that they would see had gone wrong. But the, then it was all to do with the threats that were there hanging, that if you are going to do it, you are going to be uh, arrested. And face the consequences. Uh, yeah, and yeah. face the consequences. Yeah. Now, Mluzi kind of came with a different approach, where he was now enticing the journalists with gifts, somehow. So uh, even when you would find that the, uh, something is wrong, uh, and when the moment you start reporting about it, you will be approached. And the, the preceding presidents thought that was the way to go. So much so that you'd find that there was polarization even within the media fraternity on how to tackle these stories. Uh, but when you look at all the regimes, you'd find that there were always sticky issues related to procurement, which has now become very prominent now. Uh, when, when Peter Mutalika, yes, right. uh, who has been succeeded by uh, Chakwera Razalas, but before him, right. his elder brother Bingo had also issues with um, procurement. Right. But the, what, has, what was actually happening was that the, you'd find that the journalists would do choose what to report and what not to report, depending on the kind of relationship that they had uh, developed behind the curtains with the, the people that were yeah, in yes. power. Yeah. That's interesting. Yes. And also, because I had heard from a journalist um, in Malawi some time back, and I think it was when I was at a workshop there, that even checkbook journalism is a bit and has been something of a problem in Malawi. Exactly. And whether that is due to the duress of sort of uh, regimes that want to keep things quiet, or whether that is through poorly paid uh, journalists, um, I'm not entirely sure. You may have some thoughts on that. Yes, uh, I think checkbook journalism... Uh, started the brown envelope. Yeah, the brown culture. envelope. Yeah, yes. the brown envelope culture started somehow. Um, you, know, you know, with the coming in of Matipati, also came the the civil society. So the civil society has a, uh, a way of trying to uh, to account to the donors that do provide uh, money for their different projects. Sure. So initially, 
journalists would know what is news and what was not news. So they would be invited to events organized by the civil society organizations, and mostly they would see that it wasn't newsworthy. So they would come back to the newsrooms and not write anything. Having seen that, uh, the civil society organization started giving out the brown envelopes that now started kind of uh, forcing the decision that one would have that it's not a story to publish it. So the newspaper cuttings would be accompany the reporting that the civil societies would do to the donors to prove that they have at least done something with the money that they had been given for a specific project. And there's been media coverage. Yes, and right. there's been media coverage. So that, that kind of started changing. And the, uh, considering also that journalists were lowly paid, they thought they would be uh, using the brown envelopes to to meet the shortfalls of their salaries right. for other things that right. they would want. Uh, but I think uh, when Peter Mutalika came to power, that kind of started changing. Because the, when you look at the salary structures in, in Malawi, the, the the heads of the newsrooms, the editorial heads, are highly paid. Right. Uh, maybe uh, it could be hundred percent more, eight hundred percent more than what the starting journalists would get. Yeah. So for them, they they were okay. Now looking at somehow the mechanism of the gatekeeping system within the newsrooms, uh, this regime started compromising the heads of the, right, the, rather the final gatekeepers. The other, journalists rather, on yeah, the yeah. So, okay. so the, it means big monies, because if I'm getting $10,000 a month, right. you cannot bribe me with $1,000. It means you have to go up. To go up yeah? sure. So what has been happening now is that you do the donkey work, the investigations, but when it comes to the crunch of having it published, then you'd find that uh, the final gatekeepers will start finding faults with it. So I think that's how it got confused. That's quite complex, isn't it, it is. uh, Gregory? And I know what's interesting in what you say is, you know, one tends always to think that it would be either governments or big corporations that are compromising journalists um, with sort of little kickbacks here and there. But the fact that you stay, say that it started with this sort of NGO community is interesting. And I don't know whether one can uh, dig down a little bit in that and say, because in my case, I remember as editor years back, the UN was doing that with our journalists. They would hold a press conference in the next month, they'd give them something. And I had to call uh, the chief of a certain UN agency here and say, look, this is not acceptable. This is part of their working uh, day, and they don't need to be paid to go to Katatura to do a launch of one of your reports or something like that. But it's very interesting that it started there. And hopefully, obviously, this is brown envelope scenario, something that can be nipped in the bud, not only in Malawi, but in other parts of Africa where it's prolific because mainly of, of bad salaries and poor payment uh, of journalists. Gregory, uh, just to move on, one of your projects is to do the Malawi State of the Newsroom Report. I think you started that in 2020, and you've got another one due um, 2023. Tell me briefly, what is the, the general state of media sustainability challenges and sort of the standards of journalism at present? If you would, just because I'm going to get to radio later, if you could focus here on print, how are newspapers sustaining and where are the journalistic standards is there codes of ethics is there fairly high standard or is there deteriorating standards as one competes with the social media world and uh, obviously that ends up in a loss of public trust yeah i think i think the the, the coming in of uh, the social media has kind of uh, given headache to the print media because uh, you remember back in the days right an accident would happen at a certain location right. and you'd expect the reporters from the specific media institution to, to drive there, Correct. take pictures, make interviews, eyewitness account and come back and publish for tomorrow's edition. edition. Right. But uh, with the coming in of the digital media, with as long as you are on the internet, your smartphone is able to capture pictures, you get that and you publish it on Facebook. By the time the traditional media, the print journalists would want to go there, that's all is stale. 
So I think it's really giving everyone this kind of a headache. And the, we've seen that for them to compete, they have been forced to also create their own uh, social media accounts so that uh, much as they would expect to publish the next morning, they will still have to publish something on their account so that they remain relevant. Right. Uh, the, the, the other challenge is also that um, when you look at issues of survival, the coming in of people that ha- have influence on the social media right. platforms, uh, like you'd find that for a newspaper, for example, that has an, a, media, a social media account, they'll only have maybe 100,000 followers. But you find an individual that has 10,000 followers, right. influencers. You're right. So you'd find that the uh, advertisers would rather deal with the influencer because the, 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 the reach is going to be huge than deal with the traditional media outlets. Um, the only time that they, they will be wanted or adver- advertisers won't have the choice is when you'd find that the, uh, the, the UN uh, would want to advertise something and they would say for it to reach a most people yeah. type thing. Not necessarily also reach most people, but to satisfy the, 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 the guidelines of, of, of the... You need to publish it in two uh, widely read newspapers in your country. So fortunately enough, we only have two daily newspapers. Right. So obviously then they will benefit from that. So that somehow has also compromised the kind of output in terms of the ethical consideration, the the, the standards that you attach to good uh, journalism. Exactly. Because uh, I, I know several big corporates, like the big national banks. Right. Uh, big, 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 yeah, big national banks in 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 in, in Malawi. You'd find that uh, several of their officials would be linked to some scandal. But now the newspapers would do tread carefully because not, of the advertising. Yeah, because of advertising. Uh-huh. Oh. Government too is the biggest advertiser in Malawi. Right. We've had situations where both of our two dailies, have been one Times Media Group and the Nation Publications Limited, have had to witness withdrawal of government adverts because of the way they would do, want to be objective in their reporting. Right. So they have, there comes now the self-censorship that now defeats the whole purpose of good journalism. Because on one hand, you need to do good journalism. On the other hand, you need to survive because you are a business entity. So you'd find that uh, these crash somehow and it compromises the quality, it compromises the ethical consideration. And the, this is the kind of challenge that we have to contend with exactly. as a media. And at the end of the day, it's the people losing faith exactly. in journalism, which is a tragedy in my view. But yeah. what you illustrate is, is, is very important, um, Gregory, especially uh, concerning the slippery slope that journalism is on, not only in Malawi, but I mean, much further afield than that, where, as you say, and I I think you you gave a good example of that terrible car accident happening somewhere and the media sending a car and a journalist to not only take pictures, but to explore how did the accident happen? Was the driver drunk? How many passengers were injured? Where have they, what was the cause, et cetera, et cetera, doing their normal journalistic work, as opposed to the person who posts it immediately on social media and people draw their own conclusions and make their own judgments. So that really hones down, if that's the right phrase, to this dilemma of social media and good journalism. Do people just want to see that the horror of that car accident and make up their own minds or do they want to see the horror of that in the visuals in a newspaper, for example, but still read how it happened and whether there were no road signs or it was uh, drunk driving or a, a blowout. In other words, get the full access to information to be able to make a properly informed judgment about the situation. And that, I think, is the dilemma that the journalists face today, that we're losing that. People just want that quick fix. Quick fix, yeah. Yeah. Let's move on, if we will, Gregory, and I want to talk at so much more length with you about all these issues, but we've got quite a lot to cover. Radio stations, obviously, they proliferate in Malawi. It's a very popular medium. If I'm correct, and you can um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, there are something about nearly 100 private community uh, commercial radio stations in Malawi. So it's a very popular medium, as it is still across the continent. But radio seems to be the most focal point of your media freedom debate right now in Malawi, 
with a number of outlets being shut down largely over their failure to pay license fees or to be able to pay license fees. Obviously, I think in Malawi itself, there are those who see this as, as an erosion of media freedoms. And there are others who say, look, this is a simple regulatory matter. If the radio stations can't pay their fees, then they are in breach um, of, of regulations, and that is the consequence. What is your take on this, Gregory? Is it black or white, or is there some gray in between? Because you would think that with so many radio stations that, look, the market can't obviously accommodate them all, so some of them are going to have to go um, in that very pluralistic uh, radio environment. What are your thoughts about where that uh, discussion is at right now in Malawi? The, the, the confusion is coming in, uh, in, in when you look at the previous regimes. Right. Uh, the Malawi Communications Regulatory Authority, MACRA, mm -hmm. which is at the center of everything, uh, brought, was brought in when uh, Bakiri Munuzi became the first president in the Mati Party era. Right. So, uh, yes, there are those provisions when you get a license right. of the do's and the don'ts and the what is required Certain of... prescriptions, yeah. right. Yeah. Which aren't editorial, by the way. They are mainly exactly, technical. Exactly, yes. Um, of, of course, there are, there, some are editorial. Oh, really? Because, okay. because the content is also controlled. Other, others have been censured because of the kind of content that they have churned out. Okay. So that is also... Uh, Consideration. Yeah, yeah, the, the constituency of the of the Malawi Communications Regulatory Authority. But what has been happening now is that the, when you consider... The, the regime of Bakiri Muzi, yes. then came Bingwa Mtarika, That's correct. then came Joyce Banda, That's right. then came Peter Mtarika, Mutarika. then they recently put to power, uh, putting to power of uh, Lazarus Shekwera. You'd find that the, the breaches were there, but the, the way the heads of MAGRA at the moment, the management of MAGRA at, at that time was handling it, was that you would call the radio stations, discuss on the pattern of how it's going to be paid. Right. Much as zero is a bridge, but because you at the back of the mind you know the role of the radios and the and, and, and what they were doing. Yeah. But the and, and unlike the coming in of the recent administration, you have now discovered that the they are saying all these other administrations were wrong to look somewhere else when uh, a bridge was happening. This is where now the problem is emanating because um, we have seen double standards in the way some of the radio stations have been closed. Okay. One radio station that uh, has caused a steer is one that is owned by the controversial uh, bishop. Okay. One, it's a church, right? Yeah, yes, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a church, but yeah. owned, owned by um, uh, a, a man called Prophet Bushiri. Oh my goodness, the one who really? had, yeah, the one who had issues with the South African government. Okay. Yes. So so uh, at both their television station and radio, they had the this controversial program that was trying to discuss some 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 political issues that the recent administration was not happy with. So they go they went to them through the issues of uh, the outstanding bills with their uh, licenses. So it was ten thousand US dollars. And they per annum. Yes. Yeah. No. The the one that they owed them. Oh, that well, yeah. the arrears. Yeah. So okay. so they went and paid, but they were still closed. The same was also the situation with uh, one of the oldest radio stations owned by R. Osman, uh, Capital Ca well, yeah, yes. Capital Radio. Right. They also went the same route that this other uh, broadcaster went, and they paid, and they were opened. So when you look at the issues and the, okay. the the standards that are being played when these licenses are being revoked, this is now the questions that are being raised. And and because a lot of questions have been raised with the Bushiri broadcasting stations, you'd find that now everyone else who had the outstanding bills are being closed or their license being revoked. I see. Uh, recently we've had uh, radio stations owned by the Catholic Church yes. that were written that they will be closed if they don't pay by such a date. They have paid and the, everything is gone back to normal and they are now broadcasting. Oh, yeah. yeah, so when you look at how it's being done, 
sometimes uh, much as the, they are really in breach, but there is also a political hand behind the scenes that, also, that is also influencing right. which ones to close and which ones not to. Okay, and nothing is, and, and obviously there's a certain amount of, there's no consistency, exactly. perhaps in the application of these, the, the law. Of these rules, because yeah. one, one would think, I don't know, I, I have my own very strong opinions around the likes of Bushiri and so on, but one would think that he certainly doesn't lack uh, the finances to be able to pay up the 10,000 US, even though there might be a sort of political motive behind uh, denying him that uh, going on air, basically. Um, how is print media doing more specifically? You say there are only really two daily newspapers at the moment, especially vis-a-vis sustainability, but also... Are there generally the reporting, is it of a fairly high standard at the moment, Gregory? Um, obviously, we all know that I, I think they're English language newspapers, right? So they're yes. less accessible to people than, say, radio, which is in some vernaculars as well. But are print journalists, do you feel, still doing their part in providing access to good information for Malawian citizens? Yes. Or is it a diminishing area of 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 media? It it's 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 a mixture of both because uh, we've seen that with the coming in of the digital media, right, and the social media, uh, the traditional newspapers are trying so hard to be more analytical than they would just report who, what, and when. Exactly. So so there you could see the struggle to keep up with quality. Uh, because uh, being a daily publication sometimes, you'd find that the, much as they had promised to give us analytical pieces of our issues that we are reporting, like you'd have uh, the finance minister present a budget today. Right. So each and every um, social media platforms would report, uh, share those pictures about right. the budget. The lives. What, yeah, what, the is, it, what is in need yep. and what is not in need. You'd find that the following morning, the newspapers are now expected to be analytical. Right. If they are saying they are going to increase VAT, and based on the reason that they have given, you'd find that the, uh, the newspapers are supposed to either... Say what the yeah, consequences yeah, of consequences that are. Exactly. And, 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 and why perhaps government is not justified to increase the rate of value-added taxes, and, and, and so on and so forth. So you'd find that the, the, the um, there, there have been efforts to increase the abilities for journalists to be able to deliver quality journalism because of the different demands that have come with different aspects like the social media and what have you. So uh, on that aspect, you'd find that the, um, for example, the nation publications has even changed its, new, its features desk. It is now calling it uh, the... Um, the solutions journalism desk, because what they are now trying to do is, if they, if it is an issue of uh, food shortage or food security, they would not only report about a specific scenario, but they would also try to get expert view about the solutions. Correct. That could solutions be, journalism. Yeah, solutions. Yeah. Exactly. So that could be, that could be put into good use uh, for for it to not only report or parrot the official version of these situations. So you can as well appreciate that uh, they've been trying hard okay. to make sure that the much as they have to be relevant with right. the coming in of the of digital technologies, right. but they also need to report something that uh, is that is a big shift from the kind of uh, newspaper journalism that we were used with right. or we used right. to, to, to see in the past. That's interesting. And also, obviously, all of us in... I know you and me included want to see the survival of good journalism exactly. wherever it finds itself, whether it's in, in print or online or whatever. But it still seems to me, I still believe in newspapers going forward. They might be different to what they were in the past, but it seems to me that it's such a good niche or vehicle for investigative journalism. Exactly. I mean, if I have to read a long investigative piece on my phone, for example, I find it much more difficult than opening a newspaper and really being able to, to absorb um, all. So you would think, obviously, we all nobody's found the silver bullet yet to for newspapers to survive. But I would think that, so maybe that's a good thing that they are now looking at how to adapt 
or die in this changing yes, era. And, yes, and it's yeah. interesting that Malawian media are trying that too. Um, investigative journalism, let's just dig down a bit because that's obviously your field as well, uh, Gregory. Your report, your recent report, I think it was on a Chinese scandal. Yes. To what extent is that making a difference? And let's not forget here that Malawi is seen as one of the world's poorest countries and you have, if I'm correct, nearly 20 million people and the abuse of resources is all the more serious in a situation like that. What is the impact of of a story like that which you've recently done and you can tell us a bit more about that and does it change people's perceptions about the status quo? How does this influence or how do the media influence the perceptions of ordinary Malawians towards what is happening to the resources of the country? You, you, you look at, at, at our situation, Gwen, uh, we are about 20 million, right? but out of the 20 million, at least 9 million or, or almost half of the population do live beyond be, be, below a dollar sure. a day. So uh, that explains the extent of poverty Absolutely. that people have to look into how to face in their everyday endeavors. So when we are doing investigative stories in that aspect, uh, we've discovered that uh, most of the public officers have no interest whatsoever of what would be the final beneficial effect of the resources, of the utilization of resources that, that is out there for, right. for, for use for the, for the public. So you'd, you'd, you'd see that the, uh, in, in, in places where uh, these wrongdoings are happening, right. uh, the levels of poverty is so, 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 severe. Yeah, so severe. And now the people, when we publish these stories, the people are now arguing that you mean these are the resources that you have and this is the extent that we can live where we can go to the hospitals and ask to bring syringes and they don't have drugs so we only have prescriptions and uh, we are being asked to look for drugs wherever we can find them. So already you can't even afford to put food on the table right. and you are now being asked an extra cost of bringing a syringe to the hospital. Sometimes you are able to take the syringe to the hospital but there are no drugs. So you'll be asked to, 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 to bring to, to go back and forth. Once you, are, you get the prescription, you go to pharmacy. If you are able to buy the drugs, go back to the hospital, let the doctor give you the medication through the syringe that you bought with your own resources. So when you look at this confusion and the contrasting of what might have been if we had put to good use the resources and what we are experiencing in real time, you find those frustrations are coming out even based on the uh, on, on the reactions of the stories that we publish, we we end endlessly getting uh, phone calls from people about the ill doing that they think they are experiencing based on the inefficiencies of corruption right. that is put into practice by people that are expected to do better jobs as public officials. It's also important, I think, Gregory, having heard you say that, and I mean, it's shocking to, to hear what's happening, especially in the health um, area in Malawi, but um, it's so important that we as journalists help people to understand and connect the dots. You know, sometimes I think one focuses on a big corruption scandal here in Namibia. It's been the fish rot yes. scandal. In Malawi, you had, of course, Cashgate. Was it under Joyce Bande, yes. if I remember correctly? Um, do we, you know, and everybody sees, oh, yes, all these public figures who who taking a lot of money and, and uh, dipping their hands in the till sort of thing. But do we actually go to the point of connecting the dots and say, look, with the amount of money that's been lost, we could have done X, Y, Z. Um, so I think that provides an opportunity, too, for good journalism as it forges its way into the future in all our countries uh, on the continent, how to really make people understand up. Here in Namibia, for example, we have the Access to Information campaign, which has finally resulted in a, in a bill which hasn't yet been uh, passed into law by the president. Uh, but we've pushed that um, as, as sort of civil society and so on for the importance of access to information. But I often say to my colleagues, what are we doing if we haven't made 
people understand just how important good access to information is in their lives and how they can use it to better their lives. What is the point of this whole campaign unless we take the people with us? And I think the same applies to journalism, doesn't it? It does. Um, you want your journalism to make a difference because real journalists care about their people and what is happening in the countries. They are public servants, I think, of the highest order. Um, and we wanted to make as much difference as possible. And that's really what I'm asking you. Does it, do people, when you... Uh, expose a scandal which landed you you in jail. What are people's reactions? Are they there to defend you, the journalist who is putting these things out uh, for them to, to improve their lives at the end of the day? How do we break through that? Yes, yes. I think uh, when you look at uh, my situation, mm -hmm. you, you can appreciate that the, there was a, a public uproar. Right. That I be... Released. Left, yeah, be released. Right. So you, you, you can see the kind of appreciation that is out good. there for the good journalism that we are putting out there Excellent. that is, by the end of the day, going to serve the interests of the people. So I think, uh, to an extent, the people really want to hear what is happening to their resources, who are involved if there is any corruption, what is the government going to do about those that are involved. If, they are, if government is not doing anything, then they start questioning them whether they are also couplets or they are also people that are part of the beneficiaries of the corrupt acts or corrupt scandals. Right. Yeah. It's a real problem, but as I say, I'm glad that you are certainly working in that area to do it. Currently, though, what is the Chiquero government's view towards independent media? Uh, Gregory, are they hostile still or conciliatory or indifferent or just merely tolerant? I often try to compare having come myself from a very draconian era of apartheid into a multi-party democracy with a constitution providing for all the freedoms. The governments don't really change much. I mean, they don't really like criticism, whether they are one-party states or democratic entities. Um, what is the current environment? I mean, for example, with your arrest, would there have been any noise from government side or just quiet? I think... What has been interesting with the Chaguera government is that the, they, they are fond of playing games. So they will let one government department arrest you, they, then the other government department will start questioning the arrest. Uh, when I, in actual fact, it's, it's the same thing that is uh, being debated right now okay. with the arrest of uh, the director of anti-corruption view. Exactly. Where yes. the president is saying he didn't know the Minister of Homeland Security is saying he didn't know, and that the, the, the over 50 officers that descended on the house of the uh, Director of Public Prosecutions, a single mother of three, at 4 a.m., uh, couldn't do that without the knowledge of the, sure. uh, of the Homeland Security Minister. Absolutely. Uh, the President would always have briefs from the 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 minister the minister the minister of the the the, the Malawi defense force right. the ministry the the home homeland security ministry the national intelligence bureau so so obviously they 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 will be in the same loop and in the know of what is actually happening exactly but now they always try to play dumb when that kind of thing happens and the, the kind of reaction that it um, it, 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 it attracts. Right. So, like in my case, there was public uproar, there was the, the diplomatic uh, institutions of course, questioning the government, mm -hmm. the same way with what has happened with the, 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 the arrest of Martha Chizuma as the exactly. director. So, um, one aspect of how government is trying to treat the media, the Chagwira administration, is that they sometimes, if it was up to them, they would be going out and be arresting everyone else who is out there to to give the dissenting views of of, of their administration or, the, or their governance. Correct. One other thing that is also at play is that the the, the thinking in the mind of the Chagwe administration is that each and every journalist has a price. So they wouldn't want to fight with you in the open. Okay. So they would rather go behind the scenes and start 
uh, or they, they, will, they will look at uh, Gwen. Gwen, what, what is her uh, financial status at the moment? Oh, I think she really? she's liking really? this, she's liking that and, and this. So they will come behind the scenes and ask if they could do, assist you with the financial resources for you to uh, do A and B. So obviously if you are the head of um, the gatekeeping system of a specific media outlet, that means you are in their pockets and whatever work that you are going to be doing, you make sure that you don't expose wrongdoing that is being done by government. So uh, since we started the platform for investigative journalism, we have had the corporates and the, some government officials coming to us uh, with promises of uh, huge money so really? that we either stop doing what we are doing or if we are going to keep doing it, we should do it in consideration of uh, making sure that uh, we put government in good light. So um, oh, much as you would say they are Tory land or they are this or they are that, uh, people that are in government this time around are discovering ways and means of ensuring that the media is not biting too much or exactly. where they would bite you need to compromise the people that are heading uh, the final output of the media products that's actually scary it is uh, Gregory and I was just wondering because I wanted to ask you in terms of like training of journalists there what what would you deem it seems to me somehow that ethics might be right on top there what would you deem the most critical in terms of journalist training right now? I mean, because, again, for young journalists, let us say, even senior people, you know, it's difficult to withstand the promise of material benefit yes. from a situation and ethics and principles just seem to go out of the window. So it will be a rare person, and I imagine certainly like yourself, who is able to withstand that barrage of kind of, you know, take this, take that, let me buy you a house, let me get you help with your medical aid, whatever it may be. Um, so would that seem to be a bit of a priority in terms of training or where do you see that as? Yeah, I think I think that would seem to be the priority. Yeah. But now um, you look at the systematic corruption of how you are going to project that kind of uh, the integrity and the right. ethical aspect right. of doing this kind of job. We've had some senior journalists, unashamedly so, declaring that ethics won't bring you food on the table. So you, you, you look at a, a green cab reporter that is just joining the industry, listening to people that they think uh, they are role models, saying stuff like those, then you just imagine that it's a hopeless situation altogether because um, you'd expect that whatever is taught in the journalism schools is going to put into practice once they are in the industry. Besides the, the, the education aspect, uh, the biggest influence of how journalists are going to do their work is basically what they are seeing, observing, hearing of what is happening in the newsroom being done by the senior practitioners. Yeah. So already you're looking at uh, the, the crop that you are building. You are going to go out, but already you have wasted the, 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 the team that is is supposed to take over. Sure. So you you just imagine what kind of the future we are building for our journalism. Yeah. So by the end of the day, you'd find that people or practitioners will give you all sorts of excuses while they are supposed to be compromised. So they will rather uh, protect or defend the reasons why they are compromised right. for ABCD reasons. Right. Yeah. And that, in turn, then I guess the erosion of public trust in, in the media is no big surprise with that happening because people aren't stupid and they know uh, when an editor has been compromised or is not reporting a certain story that others may be reporting and they they can read between the lines t as to what's happening, right? Yeah, they, they can. Because yeah. even with the the state capture that we suffered through the right. businessman, Zunet Sata, right. you, you'd see how people were reacting to not saying anything or not reading anything, not hearing anything from the media. So when we started bringing out those stories, 
the, the feedback that we were getting or the reaction that we were, we were getting was that we know you are starting this as the, the torch bearers of our needs, but we know come a year or a month's time, you are also going to be compromised and join the bandwagon. So now that we've been on our feet two years running, people are now saying, okay, maybe you are a serious deal. Maybe right. you are the real deal. That right. We, we, because we have always been disappointed with the rest of you. So people are not stupid. Exactly. People read through you and they, they realize that uh, you are not doing ABCD for ABCD reasons. Uh, even with the the Zunet Sada stories, right. when, whenever time has passed, we have not done anything, people will start calling and asking, have you now been compromised like, like the rest? Really? Because we are not seeing you writing anything That's about this. Yeah, so, so you'd see that people are really, really waiting that, when is it happening with these guys? Right. If, are they still going to be with us? Right. Are they going to be serving our interests as the public? So this kind of, kind of shows you how condemned or how huge uh, the public have lost trust in the traditional media outlets. Exactly. And I'm so glad to hear in your own case that, that when you were arrested, there was public outcry because maybe the public are being more selective now and they can see who the good exactly. and honest journalists are and will speak out for them when they are threatened, um, but will hopefully not... Um, you know, I'm just thinking, maybe nowadays a code of ethics for journalists isn't enough anymore to build back that public no, trust. It isn't. We enough. need to possibly declare our own interests. Yes. And show the public we keep asking the politicians to do that. Maybe journalists, especially those highly paid owners of publishing houses or media houses, need to do that. Exactly. And declare their declare interests the assets, so the public yeah. can see um, to what extent they probably have been compromised or not. So maybe that's something to consider going forward, Gregory. But also just to, to add, obviously in your working career, you've seen several heads of state from dictator Banda to more democratic-minded presidents, and you've named a lot of them already, like Joyce Banda, Peter Mudarika, and the incumbent Chaguera, all seem to have pledged at one point or another to take on corruption. But most of them seem to have become tainted in the process themselves. Um, or in Chaguera's case, obviously it's his 2020 running mate Chilima, who now stands accused. What is Malawian media doing to circumvent the challenges associated with exposing these scandals? Okay, uh, I think what, what has been the case, especially when the big names are being mentioned, right. uh, there's always been a reluctance from the, from the media right. to, to report them as they are. Sure. Uh, when you look at the case of Chakwera, He's, uh, he's lost almost closer to 10 officials from within his office, all related to issues of corruption. Wow. It could be his cabinet ministers, it could be his advisors. Wow. Some are at the moment answering uh, corruption court cases. Uh, even the, the chief of staff is on suspension because it was also linked to getting bribes from the same person that the, his vice has been accused been of. been accused, that so, so, British businessman, yeah. yes. So, so there have been theories that are being built. Where, where would a, a, a chief of staff take the bribes to? Because if it is a question of money, who is the final beneficiary? So our law is one where the president cannot be prosecuted or investigated while he is in office. Right. Until, we have the same. Yeah, until yes. at the time He's when he leaves. Yeah. So this is where we are having the challenge of believing that the leadership, especially when it comes to presidency, is clean. Yeah, because the, the, right. you can't mention um, there have been issues, uh, rumors, uh, where... Uh, there have been some, of, like at, right at the moment, we have the secretary of the president's and, president and cabinet mm -hmm. who has been fingered as having been involved in some corrupt procurement issues. Right. The president takes time to react. The, the, one of the cabinet ministers who got a Mercedes Benz from the businessman in question, uh, when, when the stories came out, the president was reluctant to to act. At the moment, one of his closest uh, ally, who is the, the minister of, um, he used to be the minister of foreign affairs. I think now he's the minister of uh, 
environment or, or something. Right. Uh, okay, so you, you know how the Anti-Corruption Bureau has been working in collaboration with the UK's National right, Crimes Agency. Yes. Yeah, so uh, the National Crimes Agency had put a list of a number of vehicles that the said Zuneth Sada business person had bought and given to top-ranking government officials. So the media looked at uh, what had come in uh, attached to these specific individuals. One clear thing that has come out is that there is one minister who is very close to the president who also had applied for tax exemption from the Mao Revenue Authority on two vehicles, a Mercedes-Benz and a Range Rover. Right. And when you look at the chassis numbers and what have you, compared to the chassis numbers of the same vehicles that the National Crimes Agents of UK uh, had published, right. you'd see that these are the same cars. Good Lord. This has been presented to the president, but he's decided, to bury, he's decided to bury his head in the sand because he, this is a his close associate. So when you look at issues to, to imagine that these people were voted on the promise that they are going to fight corruption. This is what and, I'm saying. And they are not yes. demonstrating their resolve to exactly. fight corruption. Exactly. Then you take this whole thing as a joke. Exactly. Like uh, all they needed was for us to vote them into power. And yet they pretty much know that the things are not going to happen in the manner that... Uh, and, and again, President Jaguera was in the forefront during the campaigns. Right that you want to promote cronyism, cronyism, nepotism, and what have you. Uh, he, when BBC asked him about stories that were making around at the time when he visited the UK, that he intended to send his one of his daughters to diplomatic missions, he refused with a straight face. Only when he, when he returned home to send his daughter Violet to the UK mission, Wow. So you, you look at the kind of carelessness, um, what's the word, um, where you, you don't want to follow the law and, right. the, and, and, and then pretend to still be the same person that right. you thought exactly. you were during the campaigns when people, like you said, people are not, are not stupid. Right. They can clearly see through you that right. you're not there to fight corruption. So we've had these scenarios where... The, the presidents will always give excuses. A good example is Joyce Banda uh, yeah. with, with Kashkade. Right, when, when, exactly when, 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 when government money was being stolen and the people were going to collect the bags of money, right. the president started saying, uh, you cannot accuse the beneficiary of such loot because in the first place they didn't know where it came from. So when when you start when you hear the the head of state saying that, then you pretty much know that whatever talk they are giving out about fighting corruption is just lip service. But when it comes to the actual doing of fighting corruption, that is not happening. Exactly. And it has, it's unfortunate enough for Malawi because that has been the case yeah. with the with all the presidents. So you look at even Peter right. Mtalika. Right. Peter Mtalika has was... been using his. Uh, 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 the uh, personal uh, personal identification number for tax payment to bring in goods that now it's been discovered was being used by Asian business people to to make sure that they don't pay taxes. Right. So you'd find that they they brought into the country a million tons of cement, and you start asking. What was the president building? Only to discover that he was just a friend. He was just using. They were just using his. Uh, he, he, because our law gives the president exempt the president from paying taxes right, when he's right, in the office. Right. So if other business persons are colluding with your president to do that, then what is that? Yeah. You come to Bakiri Mulonzi. Bakiri Mulonzi for ten years now he's been answering the corruption case where right. uh, he stole some money that was supposed to be for public and it entered into his personal account and he never accounted for it. So when you're looking at, you you also look at the Bingo Mtalika, for example. Yeah. He went to bed with a Portuguese company, Motor Angel, yeah. where he, he got houses. They are, they, are, they are the people that built his, 
his um, his mansion at his village. Right. They are the, also the same people that built his mausoleum where he's sleeping at the moment. Wow. So when you look, you're looking at all these presidents and the issues of corruption that is attached to them, right. then you pretty much know that it's a lost battle when it comes to believing them that they are going to right. take lead in fighting corruption. Right. And then again, to, to bring it back to the role of the media and journalism in exposing this corruption, you wonder at the end of the day, when you say this scenario has unfolded essentially, well, probably certainly prior, but 1994, onwards um, with most presidencies that there's been this this rot which runs really deep um, and you know considering again Malawi status least developed a lot of development aid coming into the country a lot of money that's there for the taking uh, that really should be benefiting the people on the ground but is actually just enriching the already rich um, yeah it seems to me that media alone can't solve this problem. It needs to be a kind of combined exactly. effort of the media and, and the civil, civil society, society yeah. and the people themselves who say enough now um, in, in exposing the corruption, Gregory. But the problem is, and I don't want to be cynical, but as you say, each government has come in with a promise of tackling corruption. And even if the Chiquera government were to go before its time, the same scenario is probably... How do we get ourselves out of this cycle of, of corruption and, and start to see a difference in the lives of ordinary Malawians? Do you see a, some light? <laughs> I can't really hope for anything better because uh, the administrations come and adopt the same civil service because the huge corruption scandals are done by the civil servants. So you'd find that the, there is no stopping Right. Because the, they will just change how they are going to do it right. based on what the one who is at the helm is saying. Yes. But when you look at uh, our corruption, you discover that it's being orchestrated by the civil service. Correct. Yeah. So unless there, there was a time when uh, President Chaguera appointed his vice to to look at the civil service or public review and the, make suggestions of, on, on how best uh, we can change things. That report is now sitting at the president's desk for the last eight months or so because it demanded gigantic shift in the way we do things. Like right. they were trying to breathe in a corporate kind of approach in the way government should run. Right. It meant uh, a lot of the whole system being dismantled right. and starting to put across a fresh brick of what you would want to build as a, as a civil service. Right. But uh, when you see that the president is not interested because it's going to destabilize the flow. Certainly not while he's in office. When he's yes. out of office, he'll you probably demand, demand the instatement yeah. of that yes. report. Yes, yes. So, so because he's the... He is at the end of the stick of the corruption benefits. He doesn't want to move or doesn't want to make sure that... Because I think for us, we have agreed that if we really want to end corruption, the first place that we need to go is to overhaul the civil service system because that's where it all it's starts. Yeah. When the rot starts. Yeah. As they say, the fish rots from the head, right? So, and then downwards and... That's an unfortunate thing. But Gregory, I think, uh, you know, this has been so fascinating and I'd like to, I mean, I think we can, after this podcast, talk even longer about the, the situation in Malawi, which, by the way, mirrors so many other African countries, let us uh, admit it, and not only African countries further afield, where corruption really seems to be now the biggest problem. But what, if I may ask you in short, what is the prognosis going forward for democracy and media freedom and you know I ask that question with a slightly deeper meaning I think all of us think democracy is probably the best system and yet if we compare one party rule back in the day to democracy nowadays where have the people benefited when our people say to us you can't eat democracy those of us who are so in favor of human rights and the things that democracy brings it's hard to answer that question uh, they can't put food on the table Corruption is getting worse. Um, so 
arguably people may in the end of the day think democracy isn't working for them because it's actually just benefiting the elite. Um, and especially when you look at your most recent crisis with the vice president and the head of the anti-corruption bureau, do you think that also the stability of the current government is at risk uh, because of all this uh, corruption scandal? And are civil society and media strong enough to withstand the erosion of rights, which will happen through the exposure of corruption? Or do you think those voices will be easily silenced? What's the way going forward for Malawi? Where do you see breaking through this, this veil of darkness to get to the light? Um, how does one do that without the whole thing becoming chaos? Yeah, quite an interesting question, Gwen. Considering that the, um, when we compare the times before democracy right. and now, um, m most of the stuff that we are talking about would, wouldn't have been talking about them uh, before democracy. Right. But right. democracy kind of allows us to... The voice. The voice. Right. That's why we were saying that the, I was let free because of the tenets of democracy and what it brings on the table. The same way with the right. anti-corruption bureau. But now I think the same question, if you ask the politicians, mm -hmm. is one where they say democracy, yes, but we can as well use it in different ways to ensure that the civil society, the media is compromised. I just did give you an example of how the media is compromised. Right, you did. But one thing that I should also have mentioned is that the, the civil society, especially the people that were in the forefront, right. when uh, Peter Mutalika administration was pushed out, Correct. the people that, the civil society that was leading the demonstrations, the everyday demonstrations in the streets, right. that forced us to go back to the elections to exactly. uh, yeah you 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 look at the kind of rewards that they get at the end of the day uh, one is now a cabinet member the other the other ones have been sent to diplomatic missions and this has kind of uh, demotivated the public and because they, yes the, the civil society, the civil society. And opposition voices yeah so 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 the, the people the people are now saying oh so all all that was there was for you to and your families to take yourselves from where you were at better positions using us. So uh, even the recent demonstrations that people have tried to organize this time around, things have not worked. Right. Before you do call for people to be on the streets to demonstrate and you'd find millions. But now you find a handful because of what people have at the back of their heads. Losing so faith that, yeah, in the leadership. That, that, okay. Um, so, so when you look at all the machinations behind the scenes, or what is happening now, breaking the veil of darkness uh, would need a kind of resolve that we don't have at the moment, right. considering that the, the politicians have considered the benefits, the huge benefits that they are getting from the, from the, from the chaos. So they, they would love if they chaotic situation remains so that they benefit more other than to ensure that uh, something else works out. So the nature of democracy is that we appoint representatives and sometimes we cannot have a word if the representative is not listening. Right. So we need a representation that is going not only to listen but to put into action what it is that we are demanding. So this is where the biggest challenge is that sometimes they would pretend that they are listening but when you wait for the action to happen that does not happen so it's like a hopeless state where you don't know like like right now people are saying okay we've now discovered that this leadership is useless but when we are thinking of the 2025 elections who are we going to repress them with because everyone else that, are, that is putting their names in the heart have issues too. And the, all, all that is going to change is from changing from Gregory to Gwen, right. but the system is still the same, same. Uh, presided over by people that have individual interests. So my prognosis would be so hard to really put in black and white as to where we move from here, considering the systematic failures that we have observed and the, the 
the insistence by those that are power, holding power to make sure that right. the, the road remains the same. Right. Yeah. Gregory, yeah, it's a depressing scenario. And I mean, from my part, I mean, I think what you're doing, the only thing to do is to encourage you to continue because the importance of speaking out um, and exposing what has happened can't be underestimated regardless of where and, and, and whether it influences the process or not. And most disturbing is your um, intimation that people seem to have lost faith in the effectiveness of peaceful protest in these scenarios, uh, losing faith in the kind of people who are leading those same protests because they will simply benefit from the dispensation that follows. So I think that that is worrying because in a country like Malawi and with a huge population, the, the issue then, if peaceful protest doesn't work in changing things, we left with that horrible scenario of violent insurrection at the end of the day where everything is destroyed. So I'm hoping, uh, Gregory, that yourselves and civil society and, and the good people of Malawi can raise their heads and demand better of their politicians, of their media, of their civil society, so that one can get through this and, and save your beautiful country. I mean, I, I know it sounds dramatic, but, but it really probably is almost coming to that at this point. Any last thoughts, uh, Gregory, before we end off? And my last issue would be, if possible, these free speak podcasts of the NMT are free to use. And I would love to hear that some of the radio stations in Malawi, uh, once this podcast is out, will use it. Uh, because I think so many Malawians would love to hear um, your perspectives around what is happening to their beloved country right now. So final few thoughts from you, Gregory, and then we'll have to end, unfortunately. Yeah, I think, I think by the end of the day, like I always tell colleagues in the media fraternity that we don't have any other country. Our country is Malawi. And we, all of us cannot have a price tag. Some of us have to excuse ourselves from being compromised. Right. The reason I moved out of the mainstream media was the frustration that I faced when I could not uh, influence the, the heads of the gatekeeping systems. Right. So we started something that we think should operate without that kind of compromise. Right. So much as the, there are struggles here and there, but finally, it's our hope that we're going to carry the victory. Great. And the best of luck, Gregory. It's Thank been you so a pleasure. Much, Thanks. Thank you. Yeah.